And now here we are. Kay is a faculty member and happy, Kay? I totally am. This is my dream job. And and Josh, happy? Absolutely, yes. I, I like may I definitely made the right choice. I always wished that I was like, you know, an ni- early 1900s. Oh my God, of course. And yeah. All these, <laughs> these little ideas that you have that, that are so impactful, but people hadn't thought about them yet. I see the frustration, right? Some psychology thing, terminology that's introduced in psychology, it's really, really elusive and sometimes cryptic. That sometimes it's really frustrating to uh, boil it down into more understandable, more measurable neural activities. But what do you wish you knew? that it's impossible. That's really hard to do. (laughs) (laughs) This is Brain Inspired. Hello. Welcome. It's Paul. So we occasionally on the podcast have talked about the relationship between psychology and neuroscience, and we've uh, spent an entire episode, actually, with Yuri Bujaki and David Popel discussing the merits and possible primacy of each of those disciplines with respect to learning about brains and minds and the relations between brains and minds. And I realized recently that I have a few friends who have experienced both sides. Uh, psychology and neuroscience. So specifically, they both had psychology backgrounds and spent a couple of years with me in a monkey neurophysiology lab uh, recording neurons while monkeys performed tasks uh, to relate the neural activity to mental function. So I was interested in their perspectives on the psychology-neuroscience relationship. So this episode is quite casual. Uh, We step back a little bit, and I asked my friends Keisuke Fukuda and Josh Kosman to come on. The three of us were postdocs together in that neurophysiology lab uh, where I got to know them and really enjoy both of them. But we've taken three quite different paths from there. So Keisuke, also known as K, uh, went on to a faculty position at the University of Toronto, where he uses EEG to study human minds. Josh, on the other hand, left academia after the postdoc and has had a series of industry jobs since then, and he's currently at the biopharmaceutical company AbbVie, where he applies his science skills to actually help humans. Uh, And then there's me, desperately scrambling to make self-employment work. (laughs) But anyway, I thought it would be fun to have them on and reflect and retrospect about the trajectories of our own thought processes uh, in life and in science, some lessons they've learned along the way. Um, And we also, of course, talk about the role of AI and psychology and, and neuroscience and various other sundries. So this is a less technical and more open discussion, uh, which I know pleases some of the listeners some of the time, and displeases some other listeners some of the other time. <laughs> so, c'est la vie. Uh, you can hear full episodes and get other bells and whistles by supporting the show on Patreon, so consider doing that. And you can learn more about Josh and Kay and connect with them on Twitter and that kind of jazz in the show notes at braininspired.co slash podcast slash 96. It is good to have friends like these, and I hope you do too. Man, good to see you guys. It's been how long has it been, Josh? I, I've I've skyped with Kay once or twice, but has it been three or four years since I've seen you? I left. When did I leave academics? It was June, mid June of twenty sixteen. It had to have been around there. Yeah, 
So Kay, Josh, and I were all postdocs in um, the same, I guess, two labs, Jeff Shaw's lab and Jeff Woodman's lab at Vanderbilt University, and we all shared an office for a time. And Kay has even brushed my children's teeth uh, one evening. Oh, wow. And Kay, I've brushed uh, Josh's teeth, but that's a long story oh, we won't man. get into. <laughs> Can we right trade now. that part of memory, please? <laughs> They still have no cavities. My, my children don't have any cavities. So did a good job. Your dad was a dentist, right? That's right. Yeah, I was trained right. That's where you learn those mm-hmm. skills. So guys, let's just get into it. I'm going to, I guess we'll start with you, Kay, because you stayed in academia. Right. You are the academic uh, among us. Yeah, haven't left yet. Yet. <laughs> like that. No, no. <laughs> so what do you do, Kay? Yep. So I'm an assistant professor. This is my fourth year. Now, actually, no, I cracked it already. Fifth year at this job. Oh. I'm at University of Toronto, Mississauga. I'm running a research lab, looking at visual memory and attention using North Tech physics and EEG recording. And 40% of the other time, I'll be devoting for teaching. And a grad oh, and that's, grad a, that's a big chunk. Yep. Is that a bigger chunk than usual, 40%? I think it's normal. 40% okay. research, 40% teaching, and 20% service is the textbook uh, distribution of the work time. Uh, and often you, you fish on the side. Oh, yeah. Yes, I do fish. That's my hobby. Part of the reason why I joke up to my students is that the reason why I'm in research is in part because I suck at fishing, but I still love it. <laughs> yep. Great. And Josh, you uh, got out of academia. You you uh, took the shackles off, so to speak, or or maybe maybe not. So, Josh, I actually, I don't even I know you worked for Pfizer, but then I think you've recently changed jobs uh, for uh-huh. is it Abby? Yeah, I work at Abvi now. So yeah, I've worked at three companies since I left. So it's been a crazy four and a half years. So I mean, I guess when I left, I left to take a job at Pfizer. I was, you know, interviewing for faculty jobs. Some of those ultimately ended up coming through, but it was after I had had committed to going to Pfizer. I don't think it would have changed anything. I think if I would have taken a faculty position, I mean, in my mind, I would have just picked back up and started looking for other interesting things to do, knowing that, you know, tenure pressure would be coming and the fun of my life would go away pretty quickly. So I, I, I think I did the right thing, at least in my case. And so I, I left to go to Pfizer, um, spent about a year and a half there. And I mean, you might know, I mean, I'm sure some people listening might know Pfizer left neuroscience entirely. So they were, they were sort of the first, you know, back, back in the old days when we finally started knowing how Alzheimer's might mechanistically work or Parkinson's disease. They pumped a bunch of money into that because they had money. They were major pharma. We didn't know enough, obviously, to make drugs that worked. We didn't know enough about how to measure the patients. And so years of failure leads to, you know, what's the point of doing this? Let's just chill out on this for a while and maybe we'll mm-hmm. get back in when somebody makes it work. So they, they left neuroscience. I left Pfizer. I went to Biogen, which was, they are strictly neuroscience all the time. Mm. Uh, it was it was really a pretty good company. Uh, ultimately, I left there to go to Abbey about six months ago now, so mm. all during the pandemic um, oh, wow. to take yeah. just a, another position that was a little bit higher up. I had a little bit more oversight over things, more of a leadership role. So that's I'm at Abbey right now doing digital work. Yeah, what do you do on a daily basis? Uh, meetings besides Zoom all day. You you did you you captured it. It's it's all Zoom all the time. <laughs> well, I, I mean, it, it depends. So when when we're physically at 
the office, I, at least at both Pfizer and Biogen, a major thing that I helped do when I got there was set up infrastructure to do like lab-based experiments. So it's not something, I mean, it's super common in preclinical like biology, working with animal models, developing mm. the, the assets themselves, the drugs themselves, but it's less common to do human research in a pharmaceutical setting, but equally important. And that's something that I think companies have started to realize and they've built out, I mean, many of them have built out lab spaces. And so that's, that's one of the things that I took on when I was at, at both Pfizer and Biogen and now at AbbVie, trying to, to build some capabilities to do the kind of work that, that we've done in the lab setting for most of our career. So it sounds like you, you didn't have uh, much of a difficult decision leaving academia, academia then, Josh. No, I mean, I, so, so when I got into academics, I, I had some questions that I wanted to answer, stuff I was interested in. I, I but you, stayed, you were already, you were already yeah. doing stuff in the background. Well, I mean, it was all, it was all for a common goal. I mean, you, you don't join, like, you know, I, I joined Shaw's lab not to do digital, you know, I'm not, not to use mobile phones to collect, you know, data from people out in the world. That's, that's just not a thing that the lab does. It's equally important to me to provide some picture of what what behavior and the brain do out in the real world. But there, I was more focused on the basic research stuff. So, I mean, I kind of necessarily had to have two independent research lines going simultaneously just mm -hmm. to fulfill you know, answering my own questions. So, was that really a transition, or was it even a transition for you when you decided to leave academia? It was I, just... I mean, it, it was it, it wasn't a way. I mean, mm -hmm. there's there's a lot less. I, I think there, there's a lot more emphasis on getting real world type of evidence in yeah. pharmaceutical development setting because you know you give somebody a treatment, they're taking it for two plus years. They may have a neurodegenerative condition. You know that that's not a lab based thing that you can can really do. Uh -huh. But but ultimately, the kinds of questions it's taking all the stuff we do in a lab and trying to make that work out in the world. <laughs> Why would you yeah, want to do that? <laughs> That's because it's hard and it's, it's, the payoff is good. It, if it works, it, it's, it's a huge deal and it's, it's starting to work. So, I mean, I, I, it, was, it was definitely a risk leaving, but mm -hmm. it's something you got to do at some point because I, I think there, there's never real emphasis on translating any of the stuff that we do in basic research. I mean, almost yeah. none at all other than throwaway lines in our grants. Oh, yeah. And I was much more focused on that application after I answered my own basic science questions. So that's that's sort of for me, that's that's how I ended up where I am. Well, you guys both kind of came from more of a psychology background, at least more than I did, right? Yep. Um, and and you, so you guys were kind of coming into a neurophysiology, monkey neurophysiology laboratory as a new thing as mm -hmm. a postdoc, sort of. Yep. And I... Uh, was basically continuing my no monkey neurophysiology um, experience going into my postdoc. So we kind of came at it from different angles. And now here we are. Kay is a faculty member and happy, Kay? I totally am. This is my dream job. Yeah, so that's great. And and Josh, happy? Absolutely, yes. I, I, like, may, I definitely made the right choice. I, why have I not? I've never heard anyone who's gone to industry who's made that choice. I've never heard anyone regret doing it. It's, it's, I, I mean, like, like I, I mentioned to you before, I mean, you, I, I traded one set of problems for another one, but, yeah. but honestly, from a work life balance standpoint, it, it definitely depends where you're at and what you're doing. I would say, you know, you know, just on the whole, it's a little bit better. You, you get paid better. There's a lot more downtime if you want it, but you, you, you don't necessarily always get it. And I, I think for me, it's just, I, I see a clear application for the work that I'm doing. You know, the yeah. stuff that the, the experiments that I plan, the data that I collect, that all goes to support showing that a drug worked. And that's different than publishing a paper. And Kay, how is it your dream job? What makes it your dream job? 
uh, I keep, I, you know, I was, I got into grad school for a reason and I loved it. That's why I stick in academia and I get to do, I get to be in the same part of the game, different role that I play, but still I get to do what I, you know, fell in love with. So that's great. I'm not yeah. saying that the job hasn't changed. It has changed quite a bit. You know, I have now responsibilities in training my trainees and things. And that's again, a different set of problems, not maybe a, as large of a qualitative jump than going into industry, maybe. But for yeah. me, that is the added challenge. And uh, yeah, that's usually end up the, that ends up being the things that haunt my, the last moment of thinking before I go into sleep. It's like, oh, I could have said this instead of that, you know? <laughs> well, actually, that's that's the part of my that, what I miss more than anything is being able to just go into the lab and mm-hmm. tinker with things and and be. I mean, being the, when you're the rate limiting factor, that's an awesome thing because if you want to go as hard as you want to go, there's you, you can always get something for it. It's all at your own pace. I mean, that's actually what I really liked about monkey research. If I was willing to sit in a rig for eight hours a day yeah. every day and collect data, oh God. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it, it was. It, I'm the rate limiting factor there. In, in the pharmaceutical industry, I can plan an experiment. I don't see the end of that experiment for five years. It's right. the least gratifying part of my job. Mm. Yeah. So in a sense, that's slow. But I was going to correct you and say that monkey research is also relative to, let's say, human research, right? Like you know, putting an EEG cap on someone and measuring <laughs> something, piloting something in like two days, right? That's Getting true. A subject. Yeah. And a, a, a pilot for a monkey is like months and months. And and yeah, I guess you're the you're not really the rate limiting factor in a monkey lab because you have to sit in there. Well, when you're recording only a few cells at a time, which mm-hmm. is different these days, you have to sit in there eight hours a day for months, like, yep. you know, to get anything worthwhile. So it, I don't know. It's just really slow. And that's one of the frustrations that I had in academia is how yeah. in that particular setting is how slow it is. But the amount of the weight of evidence that you accumulate, I, I agree with, you know, Russ's point. Oh no, it was, it was Popple's point, Dr. Popple's point that the weight of the evidence that he carries is so much more when, you know, depending on the question, I think. Yeah. Right? If the question is the tying mind to the hip brain, then that's the, that's the, that's it really is a neural activity. I feel like that's changing. I'm not sure that the monkeys are still the golden standard. I don't really know because I'm I'm uh, be, I'm the only person here who is quote unquote self employed, which just means poor. Uh, <laughs> so you guys are making pretty good money, and I got out and chose not to go to industry or stay in academia. I chose to be poor and <laughs> do a podcast. Yeah, but you've got your freedom, man. You you can't. That's right. Yeah, you can't trade it for anything. <laughs> my my dream state is that five years from now, I will have exhausted my interest in this part of my career as well. And I'm going to just end up living where you live and I'm going to go off the grid. That's that's like my my dream goal. And I'll get there soon. But I don't see I, I'm not going to do this for another 20 years. There's no way I'm not going to be a 65 year old man in the pharmaceutical industry running experiments. I mean, I would kill myself. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so you don't have the I don't I don't know that many people have that dream of you know, work until you're 65 and retire. And that's when life starts. I'm not sure many people have that still. I don't know. What do you guys think? I'm living my dream. Yeah. Well, okay. So in academia, <laughs> that's, that's different because you never retire. You nope. get tenure and then you can just, yeah. you know, right. just go on and on. I It was like what we were talking about before. I mean, I, I, I'm sort of a, a cynical dude. 
And <laughs> no. that that does not is not compatible with like a long term, very focused career on one thing. I mean, you, you mm-hmm. realize holes in everything that's going on pretty quickly. You try to do your best to plug the holes for your own sort of research or whatever your goals are, but you know they're still going to be there, and it's really hard to to have any sort of global change over any of that. So you're you're better off just to you, you satisfy your own curiosities and move on. Versus, I, I mean, maybe I could have tried to stick around and make things quote better, but you know, I I've, it did just it's not just academics. I feel that in my current career, at some point, when you've exhausted your own curiosity, then there's really no reason for you to continue being there. It's just you, you're miserable. Yeah. Well, so one of the I was watching a talk I think by Philip Sabies, uh, and he was comparing industry and academia, and one of the keys to success from his vantage point in something that seems to be important in academia is people are concerned with their legacy. And uh, I don't care about my legacy. Josh, you probably don't. I don't know that you care about your legacy. No, that, but that's, yeah, you've pinpointed it. I, I could not care less if my name is attached to anything that right. ever happens going forward. But if I feel like I did something to contribute to a drug getting approved or something along those lines, I mean, I I actually cherish not having to have my name attached to everything I do. (laughs) It's a great thing. I get to free myself from those shackles. And now it's just sort of like a team goal and you move forward and everything's good. But the interesting thing is, Kay, you don't, I don't know that you care about legacy. Uh, It'll be a lie if I don't care who ends up becoming an author in a paper, right? Especially until I get tenure. But I care for that reason that I need to secure my job. But you know, the deepest, I don't really care. The deepest down in my heart, I don't really care. Um, the legacy, like people will still remember my name. I don't care. I do my research because I want to know what's happening, not from reading necessarily, but from doing. Yeah, I know. We, we, so little, little secret, Kay does not read uh, research. <laughs> that's that's <Okay>. wrong. <laughs> don't say that. Don't say that. Who knows who might be listening to this, right? Well, I, I walked but. in on you reading uh, Nelson and Narin's metacognition paper. And I was like, oh, you like metacognition? And that was, oh, a, that was yeah. a monkey lab. One and moment, you put it one moment, yeah. yeah. But that's the secret to your success, Kay. You know, you re- <laughs> reading stuff is like, that's that's a nail in the coffin. You, just, you, <laughs> listen to you don't read, just be a smart person that's out and able to do things. That's, yeah, I, well, I, I wish I didn't read as much. Maybe I'd still be in academics if I didn't read. Actually, probably true. Yeah, well, this is something I say to students that they... Well, by pre-emphasizing that I, you shouldn't be listening to me too much, but I tell them to be careful when you read stuff. I tell them to be careful not read it too much front end, right? Base the questions, read some couple papers really well, and then create the questions and run a couple experiments. Like Paul's pointed out, human behavioral research doesn't take that long to collect pilot data, right? So we can be swift in testing out some basic assumptions and then go wild from there. And that, I think, has to happen at some point earlier in a career to see whether you're fit for this kind of job, right? You can't be doing something based on what you read. You have to be somebody who's original in creating ideas, I think, to actually make the most of it and to get the most fun out of it, at least in my opinion. And I think I am living that by example is the way that I, you know, that's my excuse. I read though, I read when I have to. Well, yeah. What about what about reviews? I'm sure you've got you're, oh. you're on the hook for paper reviews. I mean, I'm still reviewing papers, and I have you no are? real reason to do you it. Can, Josh, you can say no. <laughs> well, yeah, I, but I, I like to have <laughs> the same reason why I listen to Paul's podcast. 
Oh, come on. I like to just scratch the surface and still be involved enough to know that nothing has changed in the five years <laughs> that I've been gone. <laughs> just to confirm you made the right decision. I mean, yeah. the, the funny thing is I actually read more papers now than I ever have before, just because, I mean, every 10 days or whatever, I'm I have to try to attempt to learn almost everything about someone's research, right? Which means I really have to dive in, but it's super fun. And, you know, this is like the most rewarding vocation that I have ever had. So mm. this is great. We have three happy people who, wh- why were we so unhappy when we shared that office space? Because we're sitting in a dark room <laughs> from, from monkey brains and had no access to food or drink for eight hours at a time. No, I think we were happy. I think we were happily okay. sharing that unhappy moments of life and knowing that it's not forever. Yeah. Well, I mean, some, some part of that happiness was just knowing you guys. I mean, it, it's really it's really just great to see you. So yeah, uh, it's making me happy. And the whiskey's helping as well. <laughs> so um, we're, we're going to come back a little bit uh, later, I think, to answer some of these questions about, you know, reflections and looking back and career. But let's get into a little bit of science, because I'm curious, you know, how your minds have changed and developed and how you, you know, reflect on what you used to think and, and things like that. But what I want to know, uh, first off, is I, I would love to hear your favorite or best sci- scientific you know, moment like that. Do you, do you have, people tend to have these, like a moment that like sticks out on their head, whether it's, you know, the discovery of something or some sort of experience. And Josh, it doesn't have to be in uh, academia. It it can be, you know, in your current uh, line of work as well. Maybe Josh, we'll start with you. How about? Yeah, yeah, it's totally in academia. It was when I heard cells for the first time that I was recording from. I mean, that, that there are very few things that stick out to me. I mean, I've done a lot of things, but I didn't care that much about most of them. But hearing hearing cells when I drove a, a, a you know electrode down for the first time, that's a it's a pretty cool thing. And it, honestly, it doesn't really ever lose its coolness. It really doesn't. Yeah. I, I love it. I love it. I, I would still love to listen to cells, although not for eight hours a day every day, but. <laughs> Yeah. It, yeah. It, it was. I mean, it's. It's like I. I don't think I have a, a negative thing I could point to, but from from sort of a cool scientific, like, oh, this is totally worth what I'm doing right now. It was. It was hearing neurons. Yeah, that's pretty powerful. Okay, what about you? Anything stick out in your mind? It's like you know the morning shower that I take, and the, when the idea hits you, that's the best moment for me, right? It's not about finding something. It's about when you figure out what question to ask. It's when to me the best moment, most exciting moment. Do you have a, a, a favorite among those, like a favorite question that you think, oh, that was the one? Yeah. So this is uh, related to when we, uh, on the project that we did with Jeff Footman, uh, 2015, that's the paper when that, that, that's when the paper came up. This is when we tried to use single trial EEG recording to mm. change behavior, to, to, you know, make some impact in behavior. And we know that single trial EEG data is really noisy, right? But uh, what we wanted to do is we know that it's noisy, but is there any way to harness that online data to impact, you know, change behavior later on, and particularly in the con- in the context of uh, enhancing memory and coding success, right? So we'll be recording EEG during uh, the memory task where they present it with pictures to remember, and we want to use that EEG recording to see whether a certain information is remembered or not. And in the past, people have shown that those EEG recording can be used to differentiate what's better remembered or not, but nobody knew whether it can be used after a single trial. But so we had to come up with a clever way to show to use these single trial EEG to sort out the trials that we can use to enhance memory versus not. And I've been thinking about it for a long time, couldn't come to a really good way. And I've been thinking about it overnight and stuff like that. And one morning you wake up, right? 
And they realize, oh, you just have to do is just sort the trials based on EEG signals. You know, it's noisy, but if there's enough trials, we're going to catch some of those, right? Gold can be hidden, can be hidden in the sand that you, you know, scrub off the bottom of the river or something, just like that. And I, I didn't know that it's going to work, but it did work. The happy moment. But the most exciting time is when you come up with that idea. Was that in the shower? Yeah, in the shower. Yeah, I don't yeah. know why the, the shower seems to be a, a real I don't know. It's, fertile place. It's it's, <laughs> it's the, the only place you're not thinking of any other thing. I mean, right. I run for that reason, but you know, it, it's hard to clear your head for any period of time. Get the warm water dripping over you. Yeah, nothing to think about but those sort of problems in the back of your mind. I I think a lot when I run. You know what? What's better for me is snowboarding. I think, um, and mm. a lot of people choose something like rock climbing, where you have to be so focused on what you're doing that you just don't you can't you know, think of anything. And that's, you know, that's the zone up kind of activity. And snowboarding does that for me out here near off grid, Josh, you should come visit. It's, it's awesome. I would just, I would just yeah. want to stay. I, I don't, I think I need to wait a couple of years so that, <laughs> that I'm not like, Oh, I've got to move. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, another thing that, uh, Philip Sabies, he was talking about the value of, um, if you're in academia, well, and industry, the value of, experiencing as many different varieties of labs, of scientific questions and settings as you can um, with regards to like your growth as, you know, professionally and just mentally, uh, which leads me to the question, because since you guys are both, you know, from the psychology world, but then you did a stint as postdocs basically in, in a monkey neurophysiology lab, like what that experience did for you? Did it, did it, you know, was it satisfying? <laughs> Would it confirm that you didn't want to be a, in a <laughs> monkey neurophysiology lab much longer? Or, you know, did it, did it scratch that itch that you had? You know, like, what are your reflections on having experienced a real brain-heavy side of it as opposed to the psychology-heavy side of it? I still think that I was the same person. I I am a psychologist. In neuroscience, it's a, still tool, it's, it's a tool, right? Again, it carries a really heavy weight in terms of the evidence that it can supply, but uh, didn't really change the way that I think, but I'm really happy that I saw how that evidence is collected and how powerful it can be. Yeah. And I mean, if you, if you have a specific question in mind, I mean, I, I followed a question through from like, you know, it, it was like a little, like a little kindling burning during undergrad and, and followed it through on a pretty linear. I mean, I did a ton of extra stuff on the side to like stay interested, but the core question I was approaching, it was, it was completely like it was all along the same right. trajectory and, yeah, and it like all just completed the picture for me. I felt like I felt a lot better leaving academics, having sort of done the end to end to answer the one question I was interested in than probably if I didn't do that. And I mean, for me, like like you said, Kay, I, I'm a psychologist. I got into this because I like psychology. I skipped medical school when I thought I wanted to be a neurologist because I realized that there was psychology and cognitive psychology was a thing. And I got interested in that. I understood that, that that was more what I was interested in. And the brain gives me a mechanistic explanation for what I observe in the person. And it can be in the lab or it can be me talking to somebody on the street. But that's, that's what I wanted to get. I feel like I got that. Don't you think that people that every neuroscientist or 90 something percent of them start off like I did wanting to understand minds and, and what essentially boils down to psychology. And for that reason, I, uh, I've said it so many times on the podcast. I mean, I'm sick of myself saying it. I see psychology and neuroscience as being like one thing. Uh, and I know that that upsets people because it seems like there's more than more of a divide than ever right now in the literature about yeah. the differences between them. And 
I don't see the problem. I I, I see I, I call all natural sciences about the brain and mind neuroscience just because it's easier. You know, it's like the lowest dimensional thing I can say. Um, but do you guys see that you know psychology and neuroscience as as very divided? Do you see neuroscience as just a confirmatory role for psychology, for instance? Uh, no, it doesn't have to be. But everybody has a right to use. I think those are just a tool. So expand, yeah, expand on that because that neuroscience is a tool. That's an interesting statement. Yeah, so that is, okay, I, I'm probably pissing somebody off. <laughs> and I'm sorry for that. But I, if this you is are, just that's my, good for the show. Yeah. yeah, this is just my view and my how I um approaching to neuroscience, right? So my goal, my personal goal is to figure out how mind works, mm -hmm. right? And to be more exact, I the reason why I do science, I, I'm interested in mind is my life is hard, right? I've, I have to memorize a lot of things, but I can't do it even though I want to. Why is that? That's the basis of my research, right? And part, part of your research, I should say, is improving people's cognitive skills like metacognition. Yeah, right? like, so, like, like mine, really, right? Yeah. I just say, I want to do it, right? But isn't that helpful for you guys, too? Is that the way that I kind of spin it, right? Because, you know, but yeah, it really is my, my really selfish motivation is to sure. improve my, um, my mental life, right? And you get to a point where a behavior can't really just say whether one mechanism is correct or the other. And in that case, I turn to neuroscience to provide independent Sometimes, well, it's too much to say, maybe, but potentially unbiased um, evidence to tell whether one hypothesis is correct or the other. That's why I say neuroscientist. Neuroscience is a tool, at least for my approach. But I, I'm, I know the other other side is true. Some people are really interested in figuring out this neuromicrocircuit, right? And it's not really, it doesn't really matter for them whether that is used for some mental mental faculty, yeah. right? Yeah. And that, that I appreciate that. But um, we can, some people might care to merge the two together. But everybody is right. I think they, it's just a tool to, to, you know, to achieve your goal. You're not going to piss anyone off if you say everyone's right. I don't, I, I don't agree with that. Mm -hmm. But in, in, the, in the same vein, psychology then is a tool. Yeah, no, exactly. Psychology can be a tool to show the importance or how this neural circuit might be impacting our life. Right? And I'm totally fine with that. I mean, it, it's, it comes down to like, well, you know, what's the what's the level of explanation that you're interested in? And if it's if it's brains and cells, then then that's fine. You, you know, you study that and you can map it back on because we have psychology, you can map it back to that. And that's all useful. But maybe that's just what you like to do. That's what you're interested in explaining. I came to this wanting to explain, you know, human behavior and thought and in why you know, having small parts of your brain gone lead to these profound deficits in your ability to function. That's not something that, that single unit recordings will necessarily tell me. I can develop a, a you know, a, a big explanatory theory about how this might work invoking neural mechanisms, and then I can go test them. So I think to your point, Okay, about being a tool. For me, I approached it that way, but it is, it is because I was really interested in attaching some, you know, physical, like I have a way to physically validate the things I've been saying with words that map on to psychological and behavioral phenomena. I mean, my, so I, I, I can see, so the brain in itself is interesting. Yep. And I think that anyone who's studying the brain for itself, you know, more power to them. Uh, I, I think that that's actually a very low percentage of people who are interested in brains are actually interested in brains themselves. I mean, my interest is in how brains and minds are connected, which still 
is up True. in the air. I mean, it's still at the very yep. beginnings, it feels like, of of that question. And I think that's what most people are interested in. And if you're interested in that, then you have to span all levels. True. And and you know, I'm not sure if the, you know, a pluralism of explanatory, you know, explanatory pluralism is what's needed. Uh, I mean, I'm sure it is, but there's still a gap. I mean, neuroscience still has a, a long way to go toward f- filling that gap. And I'm not sure that psychology has as long uh, a way to go because toward, you know, yep. the brain, I suppose, toward I the agree. implementation level. I agree. The current psychological theories are not enough. I, I bet it's it's not all correct. It's not, the neuroscience can't be just mapping, color coding the brain picture with the psychology theory pencils, right? It can't be. We all have to change the definition of those colors, right? Some of the colors might be better. Well, the red was actually the composition of, well, I, I picked the wrong color. Pink is the, the composition, composition of red and blue or something like that, right? That will happen. Or maybe we just maybe have to throw away some color pencil. Right, that will happen, and that's that's just the course of natural course of any science, I think. But I feel like I feel like to your point, Paul. You know, these are people that are developing curriculum for graduate neuroscience and undergraduate neuroscience should be listening to these sorts of things because I, I feel like a lot of people are in the same boat. But it doesn't really translate to the kind of training that people get pushed through and into. And, and it, you know, yeah, absolutely. The well-rounded individual is is the person that makes these things work. It's just there's not a lot of you know, people aren't led to that. I think I think the people like just listening to us talk, I think me and Kay have sort of taken a similar trajectory in, in using these sorts of approaches in the ways that we wanted to. And, and I think ultimately we know a lot more about things, at least in our own minds, because we, we have this sort of multifaceted approach, but there is, it's almost the opposite. You're trying to drive people from a pretty early point in time to be pretty focused on yeah. really specific stuff that, you know, outside of the sphere of that specific thing, it doesn't, it doesn't hold a lot of weight and you don't have the ability to synthesize all of this stuff. It, just knowing a lot more, having more breadth, you, you're just, you're able to synthesize it. You ask better questions, you get better answers. That's, yeah, it's needed. It's just not the way that the field goes. And that's partially why I left academics. What, one more Philip Sabies point that he made in industry, what you want is uh, a lot of people who have a really deep knowledge about a very particular thing. And then you want a broad diversity of those people who all have different areas of that deep knowledge. Whereas in academia, you kind of want people who can do a lot of different things, um, you know, in in an academic lab, let's say a lot of different things at just um, not necessarily a surface level, but maybe not as deep, Hmm. deeply as some expert in a particular topic. Because in in an academic lab, you're kind of limited with the amount of team members that you, that you have. And so you all have to sort of reach beyond your expertise to, if you want to synthesize and move forward. Does that make sense? And does that, does that ring true? I think it depends on what industry, it just depends. In, in the pharmaceutical industry, I think it's different because you, so it's set up the same, right? You have a matrix team and there is a specialist in, in something that is one member of that team and they're supposed to do that thing. But I, I mean, I can tell you, especially doing, it's human science. You, you know how much breadth you have to have. Like as a neuroscientist, you, you're end to end. You need to be able to plan the experiment. You need to be able to build the rig. You need to be able to do the surgeries, drop the electrodes, analyze the data, and then publish the results and talk about them. That's a skill that you don't get a lot of places, and it shows. I mean, you you work with people that are very like 
focused on one thing. And, and the problem is you're in, you're in an industry where, you know, if I was focused on, on Parkinson's disease and that was all I really knew, well, we've got 15 other diseases. Some of them aren't even neuroscience disorder, like neuroscientific questions that we would be asking. How could I ever do that job if I didn't have some general heuristic about how to do it? Didn't, wasn't able to synthesize diverse information. I think if you're like, I don't know, maybe, well, maybe this is, if you work in the insurance industry, I, I don't know. I think it, it, the closer you are to the life sciences in, in human research, it, it's closer to what you'd want in like an academic lab than if you're out working somewhere else where you are just given, here's a chunk of work to do, complete this work, and then somebody's going to build on it because it, it just doesn't work that way. We're just planning really exper really expensive experiments mm. in the pharmaceutical yeah. industry, really no different than the kinds of considerations we'd put into a cheap undergrad study in a lab, but but a lot more stakes involved. But the people just don't have this sort of diverse experience planning, executing, analyzing, right. reporting studies. And it's a huge problem. I wish you guys would come work with me. It would make my life so much easier. I'm not, I'm not working for the man ever again. <laughs> I'll drink with the men. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I get that. Well, you have a fair amount of independence if you want it. Right. But at the end of the day, they always they always own you. If if Pfizer leaves neuroscience, your 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 big study gets killed. They don't really care. You know, years of people's work gets cut. It's sort of cold, but you have to prepare for it. And if you're prepared for it, then you have a fair amount of autonomy. Yeah. So how much autonomy do you have in Deciding what question to go after. Can you say, for example, when you, when you wake up, you take a sh you, you're in the shower, you come up with this beautiful idea that you have no, you're not an expert on at all, and can you just run the experiment that day? But the, you have to answer that question for yourself after Josh answers. Oh, okay. It's I, I have a lot of freedom to operate within a within a confined mm. space. So say you know I work on I work on like ten or fifteen different programs that span different disease areas and. And within those broad confines, the problems that I'm, I'm trying to address, the data I'm trying to collect, the experiments we're trying to run, I, I have probably as much control as I had in an mm. academic lab because I'm, I'm the expert. I'm, that's my job is to plan those studies. So it's, it's all the same. The difference being that, you know, when I was working in a, in a academic lab, I could read a social psychology paper that was interesting to me. And as a little side gig, run a couple of experiments because I thought it was a cool thing to do. That goes away. In humans. In humans. Yeah. Yeah. Not in monkeys. <laughs> well, no. <laughs> you need to know coming into the monkeys that you're going to be committing five years to answering one question. But that question will be, <laughs> it'll be beat to death for 15 years with the data you collected. I've, I've been publishing as many monkey papers since I left academics as when I was in more. I'm, I'm... <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. Kay, can you answer that same question? How much, I, I have a feeling that you're going to say that you feel vast amounts of freedom uh, with your shower thoughts and applying them. I do. So I, well, still, you know, I wouldn't say the perfect freedom, but um, I have a way to make it happen. I can still approach. I have a hope to make that shower thought into a real experiment. Well, it's all piloting. You can pilot, right? That's and right. Th that's the key, I think. Exactly. Right? I can pilot it. And that's that's how what, what I decided to come back to human research is just that. I can actually pilot the experiments really quickly and see what if that's the way that I want to go. That's how I like to fish as well. I try out different rigs and see what works and then go with that, right? I, I'm not smart enough to figure out the best shot in the first try. So I'd like to keep a couple lines in the water, 
and figure things out. And being able to do that is why I love this job. Yeah. Well, that that's one of the reasons why one of the reasons why I left academia is I I could not foresee having the freedom because I was monkey neurophysiology guy, not psychology guy, not piloting human studies guy. That was my skill set, and so I'd, my faculty position would be in monkey neurophysiology, and I did not foresee a, a situation where I could exercise the freedom to manifest what I came up with in the shower, right? So. So I, I think that's key, probably to your one of the keys to your happiness, Kay, in academia right. is that that freedom, perhaps. Exactly, that's exactly it, and um, yeah, and then there, you know, that's not the only the academia is not just for these kind of people, right? You know, there are people who are who are having successful labs doing just one thing and making a really, really deep, insightful experiments onto these one small things, and that's a really good success model. It just depends on who you are and where you find a niche, you know, whether you find a niche to do it. And for me, Paul is right. I wanted to cast a wider net. And that's how I like to do science. I'm interested I get interested in many things and I wanna get going with any ideally all of the things that I got that got me interested. So human work was being able to do exercise that freedom was the was the reason why I decided to stick in academia. Paul, I, like you, I, I felt like I was going to lose that freedom one way or another at some point. I mean, I just remember simultaneously, I was interviewing for academic jobs and, and industry jobs. And the academic jobs, I mean, I, I felt like a bit of a curiosity because I, I did multiple things. They, yeah. they, couldn't, they couldn't figure out, like, what are you going to do here? It was like, we brought you in for an interview, and this is all awesome, but we, we want you to set up an EEG lab and and like do these specific things that you've been doing and and to be honest with you at that point i was independently working on doing some of this like digital stuff yeah we yeah. call digital and and that's i was getting grants funded like sbirs and sttrs working with with companies doing this stuff and i knew that's where the the things were going to go that's where my money should be coming from that's I, I could use that to fund my eeg lab but there just wasn't the the appetite to to have that kind of like utility player on the faculty when you have one faculty role and you need somebody to take these two boots that got put in that nobody is using for EEG work. I mean, it's just those sort of practicalities. And I saw my my freedom sort of fading away. I think I would have it would have been in, in the same place. I would have had some freedom, but there would have been some constraints around it, and I wouldn't have felt as free as I wanted to. So I think ultimately I made the right choice. But it sounds like, hey, it works out maybe a little bit better for you. You sound like you're in a good spot. I just wasn't, I was 50-50 whether I'd have that, so I, I bailed. Mm. Well, I mean, Kay's also, you know, productive, which helps. But, you know, <laughs> when you're productive, you can, you can, I think, you know, spread your tendrils out. Uh, spread your tendrils, tentacles. Ten <laughs> spread your tentacles out. You know, tendrils have, too, right? I mean, our, tendrils our, too. Yeah, yeah. Octop octopi are just. Yeah, it was like the vegetarian version of the. the ve <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. For decades, uh, you know, <laughs> before a few years ago, it was a single electrode recording a single neuron, or maybe two if you're near another neuron, mm -hmm. close enough to record it. And then all of a sudden you started getting tetrodes and then yep. and then multi-contact electrodes and now it's up into the you know thousands you know hundreds you know with Utah rays and stuff and monkeys anyway and then you can go beyond that with with mm -hmm. uh, calcium imaging and, and things like that in, in mice and rodents. Is this a turning point in in neuroscience? Are we at the are we at a juncture right now? Do you see? Are we at the L of the uh, our, our level of understanding 
um, it, you know, did we, were we just, Josh, were, were you and I just a li- the tiny, tiniest bit too early in academia to reap those benefits? Oh man, I feel like that, that all happened. Like I, I always wished that I was like, you know, a ni- early 1900s. Oh my scientist. God, of course. And yeah. All <laughs> these, these little ideas that you have that, that are so impactful, but people hadn't thought about them yet. And it's like a huge, huge advance to, to think that and then prove it out through experiments. And, and now we're like, you know, we're, we're focused on the most minute little questions, just trying to like chip away a little <laughs> bit at them. But I, I wish, I, I kind of feel like it's the opposite of, of, of that. I mean, I feel like we know a lot. There's some little gaps. Those gaps are, you're like an asymptote, right? So a little bit of movement, it's not going to be that much movement, but it could push you over a little bit to really understand stuff. But I feel like a lot of that ends up being like methodological and, and not so much theoretical got a lot of theories we can mm. start testing if the methods catch up and i feel mm-hmm. kind of like that's what's been happening with with optogenetics and stuff it's just it gives you a way to verify stuff that you already thought was happening and control those things better and and i think that's useful because it verifies things but i feel like the excitement of being a 1908 scientist <laughs> you know william james i could have written a book that was was would be pop psychology by today's standards but it's it is the foundation of most of our thinking that i, I just wish you know if i if it was if it was like a real life real life bill and ted's i would take the i would take the uh, telephone booth time machine back to the early 1900s and be a neuroscientist you know not all my listeners are as old as you are and probably don't know what that <laughs> reference was alluding to bill and ted's i can't uh, believe you brought out bill and ted well I'll, I'll have you know there was a new bill and ted's that came out last year so i didn't realize it came out oh it came out i was on the hot seat i was hoping it'd come out and then i guess it passed me by but Kay, what do you do you, do you agree with that i don't know to me just data alone is not going to solve the problem, I don't think, right? So the neural net deep learning type of stuff, I think that's cool. But for me, I am not using neural net, you know, deep learning or anything as a tool. So the deep learning revolution has not affected your lab or your research at all? Not not in a day-to-day operation, no. Or not even a think in coming up with a new experiments, no. Mm-hmm. Right? The reason why it hasn't impacted me is that I am the bottleneck. For me to understand is to... I don't think I will be able to understand what it's offering. I think it'll be a useful simulation device. Okay, this does what brain seems to do. So this must be right. Is At least that's my naive understanding of what deep learning it has to offer. But, you know, the, for me, what understanding means is to actually be able to, to separate out all the processes into uh, dissociable things and then make manipulation onto them to make a predictable outcome. And is creating convoluted network helped me do that. I'm not there. I'm not convinced that I will be able to use it at this point. Well, I mean, there, there are kind of two ways that the deep learning quote-unquote revolution um, is in, influential in neuroscience. One is, you know, at attempts for theory of the brain and for using um, neural networks as models of the brain and then comparing them to mm-hmm. brains and, and behavior and output. But the other is just as a tool to, to categorize, you know, things like... Um, where I could see, you know, in EEG, using the data to categorize, did they see a rabbit or did they see a squirrel, right? right. Ba- based on the, the EEG data, that could be useful in that respect. Yes. So I do that using the machine learning type of, you know, we provide yeah. the feedback, not the deep learning way. And that makes sense to me. But going beyond to deep learning to accept some unknown black box in there, I don't know if that's getting me closer to actually get the what the understanding that I want. 
I am not there yet, is what I'm saying. Well, so this is good because I was gonna, I was about to switch, you know, to bring in AI because this is ostensibly a podcast about the interface between neuroscience and AI. Um, and sometimes that's just, you know, window dressing, I suppose. But, you know, we never, I don't know that we ever sat around and talked about AI and the deep learning revolution, let's say, kicked off in 2012, right? And when did we leave lab? So, 2016 to 17. Yeah, six, 2016, something yep. like that. So that had already happened, but we never had conversations about it. And I, it wasn't on my radar. Was it um, on either of your ra- radars? Like that, the whole AI side of things? I mean, it was, but I, it wasn't, I mean, it, it, I mean, I knew it existed. I didn't see the utility in it for my day to day. And there weren't as interest. I mean, it was like the beginning of interesting things coming out of it. So I think, I think for me, I just chose to ignore it because it didn't have relevance. Now I can't avoid it. It's like a huge, like it's everywhere. It's, yeah. it's just like a, it's a buzz term. And, and what people don't like, they don't understand that just like everything else, it's, it's a tool that you can use. It has utility in very specific settings and other settings. It is not useful in any way. It can lead you in the wrong direction. And, but everybody wants to do it because they hear it. Yeah. yeah. And, and it ends up causing huge problems. I mean, when you're developing novel measures of behavior, and you're, you're sort of mining the data using a deep neural net to tell you, look, there's 20 little features of this that help me differentiate somebody with Parkinson's from a, a healthy comparison. I don't care if there are 20 little features that differentiate them. I need to know what it's doing so that I can say that, that some aspect of their function is improved. And deep learning does not get you there. But I, I think most people don't realize it. And so they just, you, they'll, they'll apply that to large data sets collected in their clinical trials not understanding that it's not going to tell you the level of explanation that you actually want to get out of. Well, I mean, there's a big push for explainable AI these days, I suppose. That well, that's that's a different thing. I mean, that's that's like kind of pushing against all of this, right? You, you almost have to use some version of artificial intelligence and machine learning to build the models that you use to, to classify events out in the world. So you're continuously recording mm-hmm. somebody walking around. You have to be able to do that. But you, those are explainable pieces of AI where you've built them with a purpose. They can be built based on your understanding of biomechanics. And, and you know, you could tell somebody from raw signal to the output what was going on. That's what you need to be able to do because those levels of explanation in between are what tell you, like, this behavior that I saw maps to this thing that's actually happening in a patient's brain. Well, th- that's one reason why I think that deep, well, I'll say deep learning has a lot of promise for helping understand brains is because you can develop theories and test them pretty quickly in a deep, you know, neural network where, whereas you, you, and you have knowledge of all the weights, every time step you can, if you wanted to, you could read out anything, all the parameters that you wanted. And so you can really test your theories and, you know, AI moves its little circle of completion happens so quickly relative Mm -hmm. to neuroscience, which is, you know, even though K you, you go fast. Uh, and you can go fast because you're in an EEG lab. Still, neuroscience is slow relative to true building a model, running it, testing it, having a theory. Assuming that it is the correct model. Well, so, yeah, but you're so so. The next next people I'm going to have on the podcast are Omri Barak and David Sicillo, and they work on uh, recurrent neural networks and trying to understand them using dynamical systems theory to understand what's going on in recurrent neural networks. And that seems a, a really promising route to me to understand, you know, at the population level and in some way that we haven't penetrated yet or haven't, we haven't asked the right questions yet. And I feel like the right questions will come at least will, will be helped by studying these neural networks. And you guys don't see that as a, as a route to understanding brains? 
I think it is a root and it can be a root, but it's not mine. So me, maybe this, again, this is just me, right? The reason why I do science is because I want to understand. Right? Yeah. That, that's what I want to do. It's yeah. very selfish, right? And I'm in the same boat. Yeah. I can't, at this, with my level of knowledge, right, and expertise, I don't know if I'll be able to understand the simulation that you are Well, I, I agree with Josh that it provides utility, right? It can tell you what's important, right? But everything that happens in the deep convoluted neural net is a mystery still. And does that help me provide descriptive terms as to what processes have taken place? I don't know if I have that, that labels for them. And is that going to help? I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I've just, oh, I've, I probably had this conversation with you, Paul, because you, you've been a modeler as long as I've known you. Like I, I never, I never understood why you would model something that you could just test. I mean, this is going to piss people off because this, I've, I've had this conversation with modelers many, many times. But, but, and I'm not, I'm not taking anything away from modeling. I mean, maybe it's precisely because you can do that; it's powerful. But, but at the same time, I mean, the thought model that would lead you to set up a neural net in a certain way could be the same thought model you use to plan a series of experiments. And the experiments have the benefit of being something that's empirically tested. It's derived from the humans that you're trying to study. That's, that's I think, to me, if I was going to put my time somewhere, the reason why I've typically neglected modeling, despite being exposed to it a lot, is because I'd rather just run the experiment. There's lots to say there. One thing is that with modeling, so you have a, a mechanistic theory, right, of how this might be how how the neurons might be interacting and how their activity leads to a certain behavior. And you can build all of the parts into the model, right? But then to test all of the parts in the brain, that's a ton of work, right? So if you can build the model with a few assumptions and only do like two experiments in the brain, one or two experiments of the brain that will confirm that model's likelihood of being correct, then that's where the utility of, of modeling is, I think. Yeah, but I'm coming at it from more of a behavioral science standpoint where that's not really an option. And, and a lot of, of a lot of like, yeah. you know, contemporary modeling started there. And, and so for me, I mean, that, that's sort of where cognitive mod modeling, like yeah. box and arrow. Types exactly. of, yeah. Yes. yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I will just always be the experimentalist and, and you can always be the modeler. I'm not a modeling person. You probably aren't either. After spending so much time pouring over your models in the lab. Oh my God! When's the last time you guys uh, coded in MATLAB? For K, it was probably today. Today, yep, you're today, right, Josh. You I, I left MATLAB. I'm I'm all Python. I, oh, I'm, yeah, I still too. do a significant amount of of data science work, but it's it's going back to the point I made earlier. There just aren't people there that have the the right skill set to do it, and so I get yeah. stuck having to do it. And I had to pick up new technique. I mean, it's just like being in the lab. It was like starting another postdoc. Yeah, j just to get us back on track. Sorry for that aside, but I mean, yeah, my modeling, of course, I had to pour over the the uh, code because, but that's mostly because I was a terrible coder and you know, used piece together other people's code and then wrote my own terrible code and then you know you'd find errors and it's just awful, you know. And that took almost as long as the monkey experiments. But I I'm not a I'm an experimentalist uh, by uh, trade. I I came to modeling when I was in you know graduate school and and eventually as a postdoc. That's when modeling became necessary. Like you couldn't publish a paper almost unless you had a model to go along with your data. Um, and that's when that started to happen. And, and um, I mean, just, you know, the, the more data points that you had, the more ways to approach the question 
that converge, the mm -hmm. stronger the yeah. uh, answer to the hypothesis is. So, I mean, I know you hate modeling. Well, it's, it's easy for me to say that I hate modeling because I don't have to do it and I can run the experiments and then I can point to a model that confirms it without having to do it myself. <laughs> sure. I mean, that, that's, that's sort of how I feel about uh, uh, Yuri's view of, of the brain being everything. It's, it's sort of like... Yeah, it's easy to say now with a hundred years of hindsight of, of terminology and, and mm -hmm. you know, he his mental heuristic, as much as he might not like to admit it, is based probably on those yep. things. They, but he does admit that. Mm -hmm. So this is I, I well, get right, this right, okay. So yes, yeah. I, I shouldn't have, yeah, I shouldn't have brought it up. It's been clarified multiple times now. But then 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 what's the point of this whole thing? Multiple papers, but. You know, now we're what just going to kind of walk it back and be cordial. That's, I'm just so happy to not be in, in academics anymore for this, this basic. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's so like, Josh is you, you've referring. misinterpreted my very strong stance I wrote here. Let me walk it back to be a little bit closer to reality. And then at the end of it, it's like, yeah, cool. We're not so different after all. Well, he, he's actually uh, genuinely apologetic about it because uh, he realizes he didn't communicate the idea, you know, correctly. Uh, and, or, and or maybe he just neglected to communicate what he maybe thought, you know, people would assume or something. But, but, but I think without that strong stance, it doesn't have as much impact. I mean, that's certainly got know, attention. Yeah. That's, you know, what's what's the point at that point? Like, OK, cool. So now you're just like all of us. Josh is referring to Yuri Buzaki's view that we should that that neuroscience hasn't had um, its fair share um, in among the sciences in generating its own vocabulary and conceptual, well, concepts um, based based on the data that you record from the brain, right? So, uh, and and that we have in neuroscience, neuroscience has imported all of its vocabulary and concepts from psychology, which I believe is correct. But whether that is um, erroneous to do is, is that's the question. And Kay says no, that's not erroneous. Nope. So now we're reviewing the. Uh, Yuri, no, which is great. That's fine. This is psychology versus neuroscience, and I wanted to talk about this. So, so Kay, what were you gonna, what were you gonna say? Well, you gotta start from somewhere. Everyone agrees on that. Yep, and uh, psychology was something that's available, and that's something that people wanted to figure out then. And I think there are a lot of people still want to figure out psychology based on neuroscience. So why not use it? But that doesn't mean that that is the right. That's not. That's not necessarily the Bible. I agree with Yuri's point. That it doesn't have to be always correct. And I see the frustration, right? Some psychology thing, terminology that's introduced in psychology, it's really, really elusive and sometimes cryptic. And that can be, that sometimes it's really frustrating to uh, boil it down into more understandable, more measurable neural activities, right? And I see the frustration, but there's no point in making them, you know, making a host hostile st stance against each other, right? I think we're well, going to the fun. same place. It is fun. No, I, I, I love, you know, I, I really love the debate and uh, uh, Dr. Popple's point that, you know, the, we are baffled by the young people being offended, you know, being offended by people having argument hmm. or discussion about it. No, I, I love discussion. And that's something I bring up in the lab meeting all the time. We talk shit about each other, but we do it for fun. And that's how science moves forward. Right. So I think there's no, that's the right way to do it. We just bring up, sometimes you make a really strong point just to make, for the sake of making points and by discussing, arguing about it, things get better. But I think we both are on the same point. We have to start from, from somewhere and psychology had a lot of stacked history on it. So it makes sense to start from there because that's something that we want to figure out. But that doesn't mean that it's all, it's all right. 
Well, let's go down the vocabulary and concept path. So question number one uh, is, do you think that, let's say Yuri, we're going to pin it on Yuri Buzaki, do you think that he has a point that neuroscience hasn't had a proper, had its proper day in defining its own terms and concepts and, and having its own body of terms? I guess, like, but, but why would you want that? That's that's the that's well, beca- well mm. because the because that's that's how you think of that's how you move forward theoretically as well, right? It's it's one potential way. So one example, especially from him, and maybe I don't know if this is what drove him to think this way, is oscillations, right? Because mm-hmm. he's a uh, neural oscillations guy, and you would never, from a psychology standpoint, talk about oscillations, uh, and for that to be anything, I don't believe, right? You have to record from brains. And look at the properties and and realize it's oscillating. And then you can think, well, what would that do in the brain? Like on, you know, on the upswing, it could fire. And then on the downswing, it, it would, would be inhibited, et cetera. And so from that sort of thing, those sorts of findings, then you start to build a vocabulary and, and you know. It's, it should just be a supplement on on modern psychological theory. I mean, it's it's a supplement to it. I mean, like Yael's paper is a good is, is a good way to lay this out. It, it sort of supersedes all of this stuff. There are interesting behaviors that we want to understand in the world. Those are the primary thing that we're trying to describe. We may get some nice little tidbits from neuroscience, but the whole, everything has shifted. The funding structure has shifted. The people's interest has shifted Mm -hmm. to, to these sort of neuroscientific details that only usually recapitulate things we already knew based on behavior and are better described by years of behavioral research. I get the the funding push, yeah. I mean, but to, to your point, there are there are things that you can. I mean, obviously, psychology doesn't predict mitochondria, and I mean, it just doesn't. It doesn't care about the cells and the components of cells. But mitochondria don't predict behaviors as well. Yeah, well, who knows? Maybe they do. If they do, do I care? I don't know. If I could use mitochondrial recordings as a way to explain why people, you know, forget what they were supposed to get at the grocery store, then maybe I would care about it. But I think it comes back to the level of explanation that an individual is, sure. is interested in. And if, if your level of explanation is is the brain and you want to be able to describe those things that you see in some some way that isn't tainted by this this other stuff, the mind, then that's fine. But But I feel like the starting point is we're humans. We observe and act in behaviors, and we want to explain those things. And so it's always got to be tied to that, whether the concepts are correct or the words we use are, are correct, probably arguable. But, I mean, there's no basis for really caring about what happens in the brain necessarily from, from a, like, it, it just depends. If I'm developing drugs, I can focus on cells, and that's going to get me where I need to go to develop the treatment. But how do I know if that treatment is working? How do I know if the patient is benefiting from it? That flips all the way to the other side of like introspective psychology, giving a person a patient reported outcome to describe mm-hmm. like abstract concepts that they have no real ability to understand or, or describe in many cases. And then you trying to map that onto whether that brain change is changing their functional daily lives. That's, I think, to me, they're, they're, it's hard to reconcile. Well, you know, why, why would you want to dig so far into the details? It's almost a, a different discipline at that point if it's not in service of trying to tie it on to, to theories about behavior and mind. Well, I like that you separated behavior and mind there because behavior is great and very interesting. I'm more interested, and, I, and maybe it, it's kind of in the same, maybe they're, they're the same thing ultimately, but I'm interested in thought. 
mm-hmm. you know, and I actually, I kind of think that thought is a behavior, but, but, but it's not a measurable behavior. Yeah. Well, I, I have often said in the last few years, I realized like I have the luxury of, of, for the first time in my life, being a behaviorist, because I don't care, you know, you, you, you know how the drug works, ostensibly. <laughs> You know, you have animal models, right? So you, you understand it's doing something to the brain. But if you're developing something that's targeting pathology, mm-hmm. it's not like you're doing circuit systems level neuroscience. It's like this stuff exists in the brain. We're going to bathe the brain in this. We're going to bind it up and we're going to cause that stuff to go away instead of killing neurons. And then all I need to be able to do is say, OK, the behavioral manifestations of this disease are like X, Y, and Z. And if I have a good way to measure those three behaviors, then I am 100% golden and we're going to be able to measure the effects of the drug and we move forward with things. Yeah, so for the I mean, first time in my life, I just focus on behavior and it's kind of freeing because I can kind of ignore all of this <laughs> other stuff for once. Ignore the hard stuff. or ignore Yeah, the, exactly. You know. Yeah, but that goes back to your wanting to do things that are good and practical and have you know clear outcomes and uh, you know, helping that actually helping the world. Whereas I don't care about helping the world. Like I'm, I'm like, Kay, I'm very selfish and just want to understand for whatever reason, you know, cause I'm selfish. But, um, but this goes back to, to the point that I made earlier. It's, it's whatever the individual's interests or, or evidence sure. requirements are. Mm-hmm. And, and that's sort of the fundamental, of course, you're going to have people that are completely swinging on both sides because their focus and interest is in a completely different place. It, it like to, to somebody like like maybe us that that wants to synthesize all of this stuff. It's super frustrating because you know you realize the importance of all of those things, and and want to bring all of them to bear on one another. But not everybody thinks that way, and some people's interest really is at a different level than somebody else's. And I think a lot of that contributes to the this this sort of back and forth. Probably so. There's a lot of wrong people out there. I'm not one of them, but it, you know there are a lot of wrong people out there. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. Okay, do you have something to add before I move before I ask a, a second question? I, I think it de- the answer the really again cliche answer is it depends. Again, if you want to figure out the new implementation, then you should come up with a language. But if there's a language set that you want to base off, and if that's what you care about is to figure out mind, then why don't we use some established language that's used for mind, right? And, but that does that's just a starting point. Nobody's stopping anybody from coming up with their own independent work, and if that proved, you know, if that becomes useful, then people will use it, right? And one thing I will say is that, well, from the psychological standpoint, right, oscillation, I, I think it might be tricky to say, say alpha is, alpha oscillation is this, theta oscillation is that, right? Those are just a vehicle of the, the information transfer from one place like to alpha, the other. I mean, like alpha is, is um, you know, internally directed cognition, whereas beta right. is movement or something like yep. that. Yep, I think that is, that is, I think people are doing that to for explanatory purposes. I don't I don't think anybody's trying to figure out one term that direct that corresponds one to one. Mm. But uh, there are people I was like that when I was start when I started reading reading you know these oscillation thing when I started doing Looking it I was confused and I was like okay I'm not going to go there I'm going to figure out my own way right that's that that's to for my sanity right so trying to trying to force this one on one relationship may not be the right way to do it maybe something that you know, highway, there's a highway on the map, but it's not, highway is not a, you can't define a highway in, for one function, right? It is just there. People use that highway for many reasons. I think as a, as a science, we're pretty far along that road already that 
there isn't a one-to-one mapping and well but sometimes people try sometimes people when people have to describe this neuron this neural part does this or this network does this people get yeah. caught up in that one-on-one relationship still well you have to well i mean part of the problem is you have to use words and that, so i guess that brings me to my you know the second question is are words enough is language the right vehicle the right tool to use to even think about these things i mean eventually we have to use language but yep. is it limiting us because you know and on the one hand language is the most wonderful thing in the universe it, it separates us from the rest of these inferior creatures and it is the most you know allows us to abstract uh, ideas and combine them but when you abstract, you actually lose a lot of detail. And True. and in the case of language and communicating with each other, we're all perfect communicators, so it doesn't apply to us. But sometimes people are imperfect communicators and misunderstand each other. And so language is not a perfect um, tool, you know, to communicate. And so is it even relevant to use language uh, to try to understand brains and minds and the connection between them? Uh, maybe not. But, you know, if you have to still communicate, then language is the only tool that we have. So we have to still use it. People can, there are people who have excellent skill in one thing, but they have difficult time communicating it, right? But that doesn't mean that person who would suck at communicating doesn't mean that they don't have a perfect answer for a problem that you're asking, right? So the language, I think the barrier there is a the communication, not necessarily the understanding. What do you think, Josh? I feel like if you get your funding from the NIH, <laughs> then, then yes, yes, you, you absolutely have to use words because because words are are tied to to people's health. I mean, I'm, I'm saying all of this stuff because it, it was more salient to me than than it ever was before. Like I, I worked in labs where we were testing patients and, and all of this stuff. That, that's a lot different yeah. thing than yeah. being on the other side and developing treatments and the sort of evidentiary requirements for saying that something actually works. You, it's it's descriptive. I mean, you have an array of people out there that have to describe how they think and feel, and and that was that was for a long time the state of things. I mean, it still is very important evidence. The work that I do is trying to apply some some more objective approaches to collecting supportive information along those lines. And and at the end of the day, the things that I'm trying to measure need to map to the concepts that people can explain. To, to like describe their current state. So I, I think yeah. it just, it all depends on what the end goal is. The sadists in academic science that have to deal, I mean, that's that's the work product. You you have to describe things. You describe it for people so that they can use it in their own work. I can use it in my drug development work. It's it's a hard thing for all of the, this, we're flip-flopping back and forth over all of this stuff because it is, yeah. it's it's very difficult, but it just depends on what the end goal is. What, what are you trying to use the information for? If you don't have good descriptive terms that the average person can understand and convey on their own, you can't provide good health care. You can't develop drugs that you know are actually doing something to impact the person. And so I, for me, I have to be able to tie on to concepts that people understand. And the terms that we use in, use in psychology came out of just people understanding that these are things that are descriptive and, and understanding what my internal state is, and we're continuing to use them, but now supplementing them with objective measures. What's the alternative, Paul? Well, I mean, mathematical, you know, I don't know, pictures, math, things like that. But I mean, what, I just feel like that we, or at least personally, I don't understand a lot of things. When people say stuff, like you guys are talking, I have no idea what you're really talking about, but I'm <laughs> pretending I do, you know? But but at least, you know, it you know what you say goes into my ears, and then Something happens in my brain and then it can land in some sort of fashion that I can carry on, right? But 
beyond that, I really don't know that what we're talking about is the same thing. And I think that language is a a necessary thing, but maybe a bear, maybe not the best mode of understanding. It's the best mode of communication that we have, but it might not be the best mode of understanding. You know, I'm giving us mm. on the deep end here. You guys don't? Do you guys think about AI much? I do because it's a it's it's directly applicable to to my work. I mean, you're you're sending people out with with sensors, and it's just a constant yeah. spew of information. Yeah. Being able to to recognize behaviors occurring from it would be like continuous EEG. That continuous EEG is only good if you epoch it in some way. How do you epoch continuous data where you have no reference? There are no flags. There's nothing to do it. There you have to build classifiers that will detect events that look like what you're looking for, and it will pull them out of the data so you can make sense of it. So to that, like in that respect, I use it every day. It is the most important thing from a continuous data standpoint. Does the does the concept of human level AI mean anything? To you, okay. You go ahead. You you, you go ahead. Uh, I think it's it has a value as a simulator. Simulator. Well, do we? Is it something to be desired? Do we want human level AI for scientific purpose? Maybe right. We can we can push the limit of ethics if we have. Uh, but that's not why people want human level AI. People want human. Why, level why do AI. we? Why do we? Why don't we go for superhuman AI? Why do we limit ourselves? Why don't we go for superhuman? Well, that's that's the question, right? Uh, you know, is, is human level AI artificial general intelligence or are they different things? Uh, to me, it's a fool's game to build human level AI if that's if what you're wanting is the AI, AI to be good at something. Why would you want to build something yep, like us? I agree. We're so imperfect. I, I totally agree with you, Paul. I think the human level AI is only useful in the sense that it's a sim it's a simulator for human cognition and behavior. If you want to figure out human, I think there's a there's a merit in creating a human level AI. But if you want to get the better functions for whatever that you want to do, I think we should go for superhuman. And some of the things that's already developed is going beyond human capabilities. So right, I think a lot of the AI that's that's been developed has yep really shown a light on how poor we are at many things. Exactly. Rather than how great we are. What do you think, Josh? Yeah, I I mean. I wouldn't want to make human level AI. Actually, it'll become increasingly easy just because, you know, the decrement of society's mental function is going, <laughs> you know, pretty quickly down. So yeah, I feel like, no kidding. We, you know, the AI from the, the early 80s will be enough to, to achieve that. But I mean, I, I think it just depends. It just depends on what, what the goal is. If, if you want to be able to do things better than a human or, or, I mean, think about like perceptual problems. That's not something that requires like high level thinking, but it is like a really difficult computational problem. I mean, the reason why current AI, like, like contemporary AI was based on image processing is because those, those are hard problems to solve. They require classification. It's something we were able to build that we could do kind of like the human brain. I couldn't imagine something that, that, so it, it's good at finding patterns, right? But whether it could replicate sort of flexible thinking in the way that we usually experience it or problem solving in the way that we experience it, I don't think that that's desirable or something that we'll really ever get to. But that's just me. I'm telling you, though, when when history looks back on this little era of, of neuroscience and, and, you know, whatever, how many however many years in, into the future, neuroscience is going to look like a really well-run institute, you know, research... A, a gent research path because it's going to look like really fast. We figured it out. We figured out what that we what we were doing was wrong over and over and over much faster than other academic pursuits figured out what they were doing wrong over and over and over. I believe. I mean, it feels like we're in this like messed up era because everyone's 
very critical about how neuroscience is going and the, how to understand minds and brains. But looking back, it's going to yeah. be really fast, I believe. It's exciting. Yeah. That is exciting. But I, it, I it was fast because it's it's just, you know... Standing on the shoulders of giants as well. And cursing the, cursing the giant that you're standing on. That's happening as well. Yeah. Well, yeah, That's with right. the precedence and of... The, you know, yeah, physiology sure. as a discipline has existed for a long time. The brain was less tractable because it was a glom of stuff that was harder to understand. It was more complex. It's, it's just it lagged behind, but a lot of the principles underlying our, our ability to measure those things and understand them are based on, on you know, centuries worth of, of other physiology that was easier to explain, building tools that we can now use to, to, to describe this other organ that is a lot more complex. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of like, I mean, even in the pharmaceutical industry, it's the same thing. Neuroscience is an undesirable place to be because it's hard. It is like the promised <laughs> land. There are so many things, you know, as a neurologist, it's got to yeah, be the most crippling yeah. feeling when somebody walks in because for 90% of the things you have wrong with your brain, they have nothing they can do for it. They give you a little bit of an assessment. They may be able to accurately diagnose you, but there is no treatment for any of those things. Maybe there's a symptomatic, but nothing that's going to cure the disease. And so it's it's like kind of a crippling place to be. It will, like what you're saying is going to also apply to, to treatments for neuroscience. Mm-hmm. Pfizer leaves neuroscience in, in 2017. And by 2025, we're like, you know, we have pretty good cures or things that slow disease progression for Alzheimer's, ALS, all of this stuff that seemed intractable. So it will seem fast, yeah. but it's because all this other failure and methods development can now be applied to this. We can do it better. I'm going to go 2030 at least, but so you're being optimistic because I... Well, from I a treatment standpoint, I feel pretty good because I'm at companies, mm. I've, I've been at companies that had, had I mean, I, I will tell you there there will be a cure for at least a certain type of ALS that will come out in the mm. next couple of years. I mean... That will help at least with a p-value less than <laughs> 0.05. This is the other thing, right? I mean, you you're... We knew how to make pills, and pills don't always get into the brain, and and so you got to do all types of crazy stuff to get them to work. Well, it's not just pills anymore. There's antibodies, then there's genetic treatments. I mean, it's just all of this stuff that we couldn't used to be able to do is going to make us be able. It, it doesn't matter anymore. It's not going to be some little like small effect, like did it work, didn't it work? You're going in, you're actually altering mRNA, or you're going in and you're replacing cells, and those are things that are are they have huge effects. I mean, the disease goes away. And and it, so like for me, my job will no longer exist. I, I'm there to get better measures. But at the end of the day, if the drug works, you just ask a patient if they can walk or you ask a patient if they can <laughs> think and, and they say yes, and you're all good. That's where you want to get. Josh, you were, you were saying, um, you know, one of the things going into industry has allowed you to do is kind of step back kind of assess from afar. And I've been able to do that as well, even though I've still been very much in the learning mode. I've been learning a vast amount of of different uh, things uh, about neuroscience and AI. And it has allowed me also to have you know a, a bigger picture to step back because I, I haven't been sitting in a monkey rig <laughs> for eight hours, you know, paying attention to their behavior, et cetera. But Kay, you haven't had that luxury. So what I want to ask from you is one, you ever think about going into industry? And two, if you if how how you allow yourself to take time to assess and think and look broad picture because that it seems to be lacking in a lot of uh, people. Uh, what do you mean by larger picture? Larger picture, like including you mean life or 
no, no, no. Larger neuroscience, brain, mind, um, you know, because you're in the thick of it, you're in your daily routine, you're thinking about that next um, even denser EEG system and how the heck you're going to get it on their heads within 30 minutes or right. whatever, you know, to, you know, to be practical, to get them in the rig and how to get the rig quieter, all of those sorts of things that have to be running through your mind. And then to think about the scientific questions and what actually progress is and how to make progress and what to make progress on, et cetera. Right. So for me, so far, what's been working out for me is to be just selfish. I want to figure out what I want to do. And I convince others that what I think is important is important to them. And that has been, okay. You, you mean grant yeah, reviewers? Exactly. Yeah. The grant or writing a paper. That's what, yeah. what that has been keeping me alive so far. Right. What I, and then the way that I think, I think the best strategy is to make it relatable. And luckily, my, since I don't get too deep into the theoretical land too much or modeling based land, I stay empirical. Questions that shapes my research is usually coming from everyday moments. Everyday oh moments. Everyday moment. Everyday failures is where I where I get motivation to do research. And so far it's been playing out. Maybe that's thanks to the chaotic situation that psychology and neuroscience is in right now. It, it's in infancy, so that's why maybe my model works. But that's something that I have been doing from undergrad all the way up is to think about every day and how that, you know, why life sucks is the motivation, really. Like, why am I being scolded for forgetting to do this thing and the other? Why was I paying attention to the other thing while I promised to do other things, right? All these everyday failure is the motivation for me to do the, to the science, right? Well, then I have to distill it down to some testable hypotheses and crafted experiment that can delineate possible alternative hypotheses. But yeah, that has been working so far. And what was the other question? You ever consider industry? No, because I, I don't think I, I'll be allowed to do that. Allowed? Yeah, to come up with a question from my failure and test it out. We, I mean, you, you'd be oh, surprised, oh. right? I mean, the same, <laughs> the, the same influence machine you've used to, to further your own thoughts and ideas is exactly the kind of, I mean, that, that's what gets you by in an in a industry setting. I mean, knowing things and being able to, to convince people that you know those things and that they're right and being able to, I mean, it's, it's exactly the same game, but instead of me writing it on a page, and sending it to the NIH or to, you know, Neuron, I, I'm doing that for leadership who has $40 million in their pocket. And I propose an experiment. And my grant is a 20 minute presentation that goes through the same convincing properties that you might lay out in like a 20 minute talk, but they just give me the money to do that thing. That sounds great. Maybe I should consider industry. <laughs> it's the same. I mean, it's exactly the same thing. It's, it's like an efficient version of of the NIH. That, that sounds great. Yeah, then maybe I should go into industry. But no, I think I, I don't, I don't think that's right. The, uh, the other thing maybe that <laughs> I enjoy a lot is to talk to undergrads and graduate students. The teaching I enjoy a lot and being able to talk to them and show how my failure can be cool and can actually advance the understanding of something maybe at least in my small world and seeing that they seem to value that uh my input is really the driving force for me to stay in academia legacy value my input that's legacy. no yeah 
okay, if you call it legacy, <laughs> then yes. You know, I feel I feel humble that I touched somebody. Maybe oh, yeah, maybe I'm yeah. wrong, right? I, the, but the being able to feel that way is great. Like I oh I I said something that will be that will be encoded into the long term memory, and they may talk about it someday. Or who knows? That feels great, right? That, I'm just being selfish. Let me give you the cynics spin on that exact same that exact same thing. I mean, I feel exactly the same way. I love I love teaching. I mean, there, there's a fair amount of opportunity to train people, even in, in the industry setting. I mean, you have a lot of people that are, are much younger than you that don't know as much stuff. It's not that different than academics, but for me, it's it's just trying to like decrease future frustrations by properly training people to understand how things are supposed to work. Because like, what else could I, what, what else do I have direct impact over to decrease my future frustrations than to train people to think properly and like understand things or view things in a certain way? It's, it's self-serving, but in a way that's like well beyond my, necessarily my day to day. It's like just trying to put out people that also get this stuff so that it's less frustrating for everybody in the future. Let's say in academia, that's a good segue, Josh, in academia you know, going into graduate school, if you had to do something differently, if you could do something differently, would you would you have done something different that you would advise people, you know, that something you did that you shouldn't have done or something you wish you had done that you think would have made you even more awesome than you are now? I mean, I only retrospectively, no, I mean, it's like a typical imposter syndrome, right? You feel like you know literally nothing for most of the time. And then one day you kind of realize, oh, well, I guess I get this as well as anybody else. And now, now I understand things. It would be more like, I mean, it's, it's sort of like, I couldn't do anything differently, but I can reflect on the things that got me to the point where I'm like a happy functioning person who has some level of success looking back on 10 years plus of my life and trying to pick out those things through introspection that could be useful to them to save them the hassle of having 10 years worth of imposter syndrome and toiling away. I mean, trying to give them shortcuts to get there just based on my own experience and those things working. So what you would say is just short circuit the getting over imposter syndrome. That is probably the most useful thing. I mean, nobody knows what they're doing early on, but you pretty quickly, I mean, you know, you give your first talks, and you're like, God, everybody's going to just skewer me. I, I barely know this stuff. But in actuality, because everything is so focused and people are really within their own sub-disciplines. They only care about themselves. Yeah, it's, it's about, yeah I mean, yeah. there's maybe five That's people that know it as well as you, even as like a second year grad student. So why feel bad about it? You know as much as anybody. Speaking of psychology, the spotlight effect is wrapped up in imposter syndrome that everyone's thinking about you all the time. No, no, they're never thinking about you. They're <laughs> exactly. thinking about themselves. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's a huge, I mean, it's like, I, I see it a lot. It's an impediment. People don't like trust themselves to know things. They feel like they know less than everybody else. For some people, that's sort of like a chip that they're like, oh, I'm going to know this better than you. And it, it propels them. Aren't those strange people? <laughs> yeah. But, but for some people, it's like, I don't really get it. And I'm never really going to feel confident in myself because I, I don't realize that the rest of the world actually knows less than I do. Yeah, I, I gained a quiet, strong confidence realizing that I don't know is always the correct answer. Almost always the correct answer. Yeah. And that is the actual answer that everyone has also in their minds. It's the thing that leads to the most interesting like discourse and learning too. If you can if you can just speak up and say that. I mean, you know, the person that's teaching you or whatever that's talking, they're they're like, Yeah, it really doesn't make any sense. Let me help explain it a little bit based on my understanding of it. And it leads to like ten minutes of really good conversation and, and understanding. You you'd lose all of that. 
I may have gone a little overboard with the I don't know in lab meetings. I don't know. You guys could tell me that. Because, <laughs> Kay, what do you think? Um, if you could start over, would you? Uh, how would you start over again? Would you do something differently? Nothing different, of course. You would never. Nothing. Nothing. No. I. No. There were things that I could. I regret that moment, but you know, years passed on. That regret was what made me. What made me where I am now, right? So I want me to struggle the things that I struggled. What's something that you wish you knew going into neuroscience research? Oh, yeah, 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 exactly. Right. So that's that. I think the best moment of that is my interview with Jeff Scholl and Jeff Whitman. I was like, I'm going to record from that near that part of the brain, that part of the brain at the same time, you know, and then I'll figure out how multiple items that are stored in working memory in monkey. And yeah, they were like, yeah, good luck. But I didn't know what that good luck meant, right? <laughs> so in hindsight... You didn't, you didn't know sarcasm at that point <laughs> yeah, in your life? <laughs> yeah, I was really thrilled. And I was so, you know, I'd be, I'm sick of brainwaves. It doesn't tell me anything about single neurons. And I was like, I'm going to record from all the, ne- you know, not all, but yeah, collection of neurons at the same time, figure this out. Nope, little did I know, right? So maybe practically speaking, right? I still, I still appreciate that they allowed me to try it out and fail, right? In a way, fail in the mm-hmm. sense that I didn't get to train multiple monkeys and get it into a paper. I really appreciate the learning experience, but practically, if I had said, oh, it stayed realistic and let's just figure out how what monkey remember one thing and how does that change brain oscillation at a particular area of the brain, maybe I had something that can be publishable. So you had training wheels on and you appreciate that, but what, but what do you wish you knew? That it's impossible. That's really hard to do. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> That's impractical, right? Well, no, maybe it was it was dead end for me, but it was not for some people. Probably it wouldn't mm. have been not for some other people. And I appreciate that they took chance with me. Yeah, little known fact uh, back in the day that it, there was broad consensus that you would not get any good data from monkeys just based on who you are and how you go about things. Oh, Josh, thanks. How- <laughs> <laughs> Josh, anything, how, you know, uh, something you wish you knew going in? Got nothing? No, I, I, I honestly can't say that there's anything I wish I, I mean, only what I said before. I wish I, I wish I really understood that most people really don't know as much as you think that they do. Just, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. to, to, to get the confidence to push your own sort of like whims that you're thinking about that you're not willing to speak up on. I mean, you, you hold those things in. If I would have known, like, not what I know now that most people mm-hmm. really don't understand most things and that you're, you know, as much as somebody has 25 years of experience, there's the things you are working on, you are more of an expert than they are. I think that would have changed things a, a little bit. I mean, I, I, I tend to like sit back and wait until the time is right to say something. If I would have always felt like the expert, I probably would have spoke up a lot more and it may have led to that. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. All right. Good. Okay. Last question, guys. Kay, did you have a, where you looked like you're about to say yeah something? no not maybe getting into neuroscience but getting into the academia and being sure this yeah, yeah. right okay. not everybody is you or the people that you knew not everybody say that again not everybody who works to who come to your lab and work with you are not the people that you you are who you are or the people you know oh right and then they are there for the right reason and they are different people they have different things that they want to achieve and that's not okay, is what you're saying. No, that is okay. I need to know that. <laughs> Don't assume that, but that's okay. Science is for everybody. Yeah, actually, that's a good, that's a good tip to leave on, Kay, because I mean, I, I experience the same thing a lot. Like, 
it, just because you have a way of doing things that worked and, and not everybody has the same sort of drive or motivation or interest, they can get to those places pretty well with taking a different path. Different yep. trajectory. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's not always clear at the beginning. You just have a small sample size. Yep. The bigger your sample size gets, the more you understand, oh, okay, there is another way to get there. That's not how I would have done it. But All right. Throwaway question. You're going to be uh, frozen for um, either 15 years or 100 years and then reawakened, reinvigorated. Which one do you do? Josh, you go. Oh, I would say 100 years. Probably because, you know, I might be able to go live on Mars. I, I so that's an optimistic one. Okay. I think whether it's 15 or 100, we won't be that much closer to understanding mind brain. Okay, we can make... We can make <laughs> hmm, that's a different question. When will, yeah, okay. When will, when will I be satisfied? Uh, <laughs> no. Probably when I'm about 1,007. Okay, what do you think? I'm 15. 15 or 100? I'm totally 15. You're totally 15. Oh, I'm so totally 15. I still want to be. I want. I still want to play play my game. Hundred. I'm convinced that I won't be able to play my game. I want to do. Okay. Remember, I don't want to read shit and catch up. I want to do it. <laughs> yeah. Well. Okay. Okay. Then I'll add one. Let's say you get to time travel a thousand years back or a thousand years in the in the future. Which do you do? Okay. You go first this time. Back. Back. Man, yep. that's crazy. Why? Josh, I would do back. I would totally do back. back. <laughs> my life would be so much easier and like uh you know, oh, that's right. you want, you want to be in 1908 with no with no conceptions of science. I'd wake up in the morning and have some dumb idea and I'd be the smartest guy for thinking about it. I would rather do that. I feel like I'd have a lot more contribution that way. I like being the dumb guy and I'm good at it. That's why I'd go a thousand years in the future. I uh, wake up and know nothing, you know? I don't well, know. no, I mean, you're, you're going to end up in the same spot. I want to figure things out. H have you seen idiocracy? I mean, you know, you go a thousand years into the future. I mean, the human race is going to be so, so low. You're going to be like God when you come out talking about neuroscience and all AI. The old days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't want to see what I don't want to see what people look like in a thousand years mentally. I, I'm feeling pretty bad about 2020. So I everyone's gonna look like hentai, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Is that am I, am don't I you already? That correct? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay, guys, this has been a lot of fun. So we've taken a long and winding path. Thanks for thanks for joining me. It's it's really been good seeing you. And uh, I don't know, it feels like back in the old days a little bit. Totally. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. It's a dream come true to be on the Brain Inspired Podcast. Brain Inspired is a production of me and you. I don't do advertisements. You can support the show through Patreon for a trifling amount and get access to the full versions of all the episodes, plus bonus episodes that focus more on the cultural side but still have science. Go to braininspired.co and find the red Patreon button there. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. The music you hear is by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you for your support. See you next time.